I think one thing that helped me realize what kind of a leader I want to be is becoming aware of the type of leader I did not want to be, both from a personal perspective, meaning the first time I had a team that I was in charge with, I didn't have enough self-confidence, I believe, at that time to lead the team. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is the composite of two words, authos, which means the self, and entos, which means inside. So authentic really means the inside self, or the true self. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, Rand Fishkin shared a different approach to building a better tech startup. And he also talked about a digital marketing tactic that few people are using these days. And remember, I'm giving away a free copy of Rand's book to my favorite Apple podcast review. So if you like the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and you may win a copy of the book. Our guest today is Marcel Quiroga, founder of TQM Wealth Partners and the Legacy Dialogues. TQM stands for Total Quality Management, but as Marcel points out on our site, in Spanish it also means te quiero mucho, I love you very much, which is very fitting given the philosophy of the firm. Marcel is not your typical founder of a wealth management firm. First of all, she is a woman in an industry that is still very much a male-dominated industry. She grew up in the U.S. from Bolivian parents, then went back to Bolivia to start her career, and came back to the U.S. She had to put herself through college while working and raising her kids as a single mother. All of these experiences have given her a uniquely empathetic view of the role of a financial advisor. And this led her to start a firm where success is measured not just by the numbers, but really by how wealth management can improve her clients' overall quality of life. That same drive to improve people's lives is what led Marcel to start the Legacy Dialogues, an initiative that connects different people to create dialogues around important social topics. And in full disclosure, after meeting Marcel and participating in a couple of the dialogues, I liked it so much that I am now a volunteer advisor. So as you can tell, you're in for a very, very rich episode. Enjoy. Marcel, welcome. Let's start by introducing you to our listeners. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure, Dino. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. I am the founder and CEO of TQM Wealth Partners, which is a registered investment advisory firm. I started the firm in 2016, and I've been in the financial services world for over 20 years, over 25, not to date myself, but I'm also the founder of the Legacy Dialogues, which is a program geared at helping people to find a path towards living their legacy and making a difference in the world. Great. And I know that your idea of service and your personal value have a lot of influence into how you think about work. So why don't we go a little more in depth and why don't you tell me what made you start your own financial planning firm? I had been working in different financial institutions from banking to brokerage firms to another RIA, 
which is what TQM is. But the one thing that I felt that was missing in my experience with these other firms was the human element. Obviously, we're focused on the numbers, but the numbers are really about the people and people have feelings, they have hopes, they have fears, and they have aspirations. And oftentimes I felt like the places where I was working were not led by individuals who had as much of a focus on the human element as they did on the money element, if you will, for lack of a better term. You could call it as much as a focus on the finances per se, but I obviously understand that when we're in business, we're looking to you know, make a living and uh, it's for profit, etc. But I think the best way we can do that is really by helping the people that our companies were built to help. And so that's why I decided to start TQM Wealth Partners. I also think that part of the work that we do in many sectors, not only in finance, is an opportunity to impact people's lives positively. And in order to do that, I believe that we have to continuously look for ways to improve personally, professionally, and in our businesses, our companies. And obviously, we can get more into that later if you'd like. But I mentioned that because that is reflected in the name of my firm, which TQM stands for Total Quality Management, which not only espouses improving at every level and that quality is everybody's responsibility, but it espouses continuous improvement. It's not that you've reached the summit. It's that you're always climbing. And I think that's an analogy to what life is about as well. So you put a lot of thought about the vision for your business and what you want to stand for. What I'm interested in, if we take it down to the personal level, how do you think about the type of leader that you want to be and sort of what are some of the moments when you started learning who you wanted to be as a leader? Yeah, I think one thing that helped me realize what kind of a leader I want to be is becoming aware of the type of leader I did not want to be, both from a personal perspective, meaning the first time I had a team that I was in charge with, I didn't have enough self-confidence, I believe, at that time to lead the team. And I felt like if they came to me with a question, I had to have all the answers. I felt like I needed to know everything about anything they asked me. Over the years, what I've come to realize soon thereafter, fortunately, is that being a good leader does not mean having all of the answers. It means you're going to look for them with your team or if you you have to look for them elsewhere and bring the solution or the idea to your team, then you are adding value in that sense. I do think that being collaborative with the people that you work with lends itself to stronger teams and therefore a stronger leadership style because people see that you trust them and they want to work with you and you're interested in their ideas and you're listening to what they bring to the table. I also think that my perspective of the kind of leader that I want to be comes from 
seeing leaders that were very autocratic, I guess. And it was their way or the highway, basically. And obviously, there has to be a decision maker. You know, the buck has to stop somewhere. But that doesn't mean that people's ideas shouldn't be taken into consideration. And I think opportunities are lost when the leader thinks that they know everything. And it comes back to that personal perspective, right, of knowing everything or having all the right answers. Or if it's somebody else's idea, then maybe, you know, people won't respect me because I didn't come up with the solution. I'm not sure exactly when I heard this, but I think a lot of us have heard good leaders say that the reason they are good leaders is because they surround themselves with people that are smarter than they are. And I really have come to believe that. And I think it adds value, not only to my leadership style, but I think it adds value to what we bring to our clients, because we can't believe that we are in the experts in every field of finance. So I like to call our, you know, our role kind of like the primary care financial planner or the primary care advisor, if you will. But if we need a cardiologist, we're going to look for the cardiologist of finance, so to speak. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that throughout my career, I've learned through personal experience, through professional experience, and ultimately, I think humility is a key trait in leadership, which means, yeah, I can recognize the good, the bad, and the ugly. I know where my strengths are. I know where my weaknesses lie. And I'm going to work on improving those. And I'm also going to try to find people to fill gaps so that I can have a stronger team and bring better solutions to my clients. Interesting. You know, you, you started your career in finance, you've mentioned over 20 years ago. And definitely, that was a time where being you know, a woman and a, and a Latina in this environment was not necessarily an easy place to be in. And I'm wondering how that experience has shaped your experience and your view on leadership. It has had a big impact on my experience and on who I've become as a leader. I started my career actually in Latin America, in Bolivia, the country where my parents are from originally. And so I was working in a male-dominated industry and in a machista culture. And so I had those two things going against me. Oftentimes, I felt like I had to work 10 times as hard. You know, I've heard women say twice as hard, three times as hard. But just given the environment I was in, I felt like it was, you know, 10 times as hard. And for what? Oftentimes for my ideas to be attributed to others or for no recognition at all. And I can truthfully say I was never looking for, you know, an award or a standing ovation. I was just looking to be acknowledged and appreciated. And I think that's an important part of you know, human nature, when I think about my team, I want to acknowledge and appreciate their contributions as well. So when I transitioned in my career to the advisory world, I started working at a brokerage firm in Boston, in the in Boston, I'm in the Boston area now, but, and I 
having been away for from the United States for quite some time, especially in my professional career, I had a different expectation of what the environment was going to be like. And unfortunately, my experience proved me wrong. The way I was treated or the lack of attention and what I mean by attention is, you know, being in a meeting room and not being listened to and then having to, you know, raise my voice. And some people tell me now that I have a loud voice and uh, especially in my family. And I think that has become just a, a way of expression for me because of the environment I've worked in and I wanted to be heard and I was tired of saying something. And then the, you know, man next to me, uh, or across the table saying the same thing and everyone saying, oh, you know, John Smith, that was a great idea. And <laughs> wondering, you know, why didn't anybody hear me say that? And I think I shared with you a story of the first brokerage firm I worked for uh, when I came back to the United States. I was in the elevator going up to my office and there were two men in the elevator with me and they saw that we were all going to the same floor. So they realized that we worked at the same company and they asked me whose assistant I was. And it, it was mind boggling because they made a judgment just by looking at me. You know, first of all, I'm a female. At the time I was, you know, much younger than I am now. So they judged a book by its cover, I guess. And my answer was, I do the same thing that you do. I'm no one's assistant. I think that has informed how I stand up for myself and how I want to lead myself first and then lead others. I remember the first time you told me the story and I was so touched by your pride in, in telling the story. So the next question, obviously, is how much has the experience of being a woman and a Latina in this financial services world been a factor in your decision to start your own firm? I think it has influenced my decision greatly. I say sometimes, you know, if you can't find the solution you're looking for, then create it. And frankly, I couldn't find the environment that I wanted, so I created it. And it goes beyond that, however. It wasn't simply to say, you know, I'm not happy with my surroundings in terms of colleagues, because I've worked with wonderful people, both men and women as well. So it wasn't only about that. It was also about realizing that throughout the years in my career, I had developed a style that I really wanted to be able to implement without the stops that are often put on employees or subordinates uh, of larger companies, you know, and, and I understand these are large companies, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of employees, everyone with a different opinion. So they have to have certain guidelines, at least. But when I realized that, and mostly based on feedback from clients, that the way I was approaching my work was different and was adding value. It just all made perfect sense to me to say, I want to create something different for myself, but also for others. So it wasn't about just creating my own perfect playpen. <laughs> uh, it, it's really about creating something that will add value to the lives of others, but 
having enough space and, and enough flexibility, if you will, in order to do that. Let's keep going down this line. You know, you talked earlier about starting to figure out a little bit of what type of leader you wanted to be, but it's one thing to either have a certain leadership style or think you want to have a leadership style. And it's another thing to be able to articulate clearly your leadership style and then make decisions and build a business consistently with this value. So tell me a little bit about that journey and and that process for you. Yeah, I think that is a very interesting truth that, you know, we may know our, the style of leaders we want to be, or we may have our own style, but do we really know what it is? Uh, So I think it takes, uh, it definitely takes self-reflection and it takes honesty, being honest with oneself. I mean, you can try to fool other people, but you can't fool yourself, you know, to the theme of your podcast is authentic leadership. If you truly want to be authentic, you have to know who you are. I think ever since I was a child, even though I was not aware of this, who I am and who I was as a child as well was someone who found joy in helping others. And I know in business, we all say we want to help others. We want to help our clients. We want to help our employees, et cetera. But when I say help, I think it's more about impact, making a difference, having an impact on the world. And I had an experience as a child that really marked the rest of my life, which was representing the United States in the International Fair of the Child when I was um, 11 years old. And this fair was in Paris, France. It was a UNESCO event. And it gave me an opportunity to learn about how children in third world countries live compared to how I was living here in a first world country. Add to that, that when I was 17, I moved to Bolivia, my parents' country of origin, like I've said before, also a third world country. Through a series of experiences that I had while I was there, I think more and more I realized and can say with total conviction that making a difference is really why we're here. That's what I believe. And so... Of course, I want to run a profitable business and I want to run a successful business, but part of success is really the impact you're having on others. So I want my team to have a good experience working here and I want them to thrive by doing what they do here. I want to attract other people who have that desire to do well and do good at the same time. And I want my clients to know that what we're doing for them is really beyond the numbers. The numbers, of course, matter. That's why they hire us. They hire us to help them protect and grow their wealth. But I think when they understand that the reason why we do that is because we recognize that their financial wealth serves to enrich their human, social, and spiritual wealth, then they they see that we get it, that the, you know, they can have great, great success in their careers. If you want to 
say success uh, or measure success from a monetary perspective, but the way they translate that success into other areas of their lives is about the decisions they make with the people they love, the contributions they make to society and the well the wellness of themselves and that's the spiritual side as a whole human person, right? Not just as a successful, you know, CEO, a successful entrepreneur or a successful professional like a doctor or an attorney, but really as whole persons. As a result, I do think that, you know, these different experiences in my life and my interest in numbers and in uh, financial wellness have led me to realize that I want to have a business that will touch people's lives beyond a transaction. It's not about transactions, it's about relationships. And so by being aware of all these things that I've said, I think I've come to realize that if I had to call myself one style of leadership, it would be a servant collaborator. That is a pretty clear vision. How do you make sure that your vision is actually reflected and turned into reality? as clients experience your firm? Is it how you train your people? Is it, you know, and how clients are taken in? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it begins even before training the team. It begins from identifying the right people that are not just saying this, you know, face forward, but they they really truly embody this belief that we are here to serve others not only here in the business, but here in the planet to serve others. So one of the first advisors that I hired told me that if he weren't a financial advisor, he'd probably be a teacher or a social worker. And among other skills and and qualities, but that to me really reflected that he had the makeup that I was looking for from someone on my team. In addition to that, Obviously, we all want to be speaking the same language, providing the same level of quality in our uh, services, in our work, and really being really maintain that focus on having a positive impact on our clients. And so we have biweekly development meetings and not business development, team development. Um, And in those meetings, we're talking about things like this and reminding ourselves and each other and, you know, through different, I don't like to call it training, but I guess that the bare bones, it is a training through different trainings. We are emphasizing the why of what we do, the reason, our mission. And I think that it's very important for companies to remember that the mission is not a statement for you to publicize or a statement to put on the wall and then nobody really can repeat it or live it. You know, words are only as good as the actions that they lead to. And so if we are, you know, saying a slogan, for example, or repeating a mantra, if we're not living it, then it's just you know, words on paper, words in the air that vanish into nothing. And so 
I think it's about identifying the right people and then continuously having these types of conversations and how they fit into the actual work that we're doing. So for example, one thing you asked me about was, you know, how how does this reflect in the client experience? And so for a client to receive a questionnaire when they're being onboarded uh, uh, as clients that starts with, please rate the following, and it's a list of maybe 15 values. So find your top five and then put them in order. And so, you know, some people may think, you know, what does that have to do with numbers? Or for us to want to know things like, you know, when did you graduate from college? And and when did you get married? And uh, when did you get promoted? And it's not to, you know, obviously, definitely not to waste anybody's time, but it's to understand and to be able to have conversations with our clients that show them that the power of healthy finances, the power of strong financial wellness, if you will, leads to being able to do things like getting married, like uh, going to a certain college. And it doesn't have to be, you know, one of the Ivy Leagues necessary, necessarily, but there are certain highlights in our life, certain events in our lives that we would never equate to have any relationship with money. But it, it's not about the size of the wedding. It's the fact that you were able to get married, right? And and hopefully you you made a good choice but then if it's a client who, you know, has gotten divorced, maybe this next stage of their life, uh, they'll make uh, different decisions and they'll realize that this financial independence that we work and help clients achieve and protect will help them get to the next phase in their lives. And maybe not, it's not about, you know, a next relationship. It's, I now want to start a new career or a new business. So I guess in essence, what I'm saying is that everything is connected. If I understand my client's values, I can speak to them from that point of view in a way that they will capture and that has meaning to them. And I can also see if their values are aligned with our values. They don't have to be identical but I think by being aligned, they create for better relationships and we can truly be our clients' wealth partners beyond their wealth advisors. Yeah, this idea that everything you do is in service of your client's values is something that really struck me from when we started talking. Um, something else that resonated with me is I remember you saying, everybody wants to leave a legacy and most people think that in order to leave a legacy, they need to amass historical wealth. And that that is actually not true. And, and that, that's what led you to start the Legacy Dialogues. So would it be fair to say that the Legacy Dialogues are an initiative that allows people to start leaving their legacy sooner than they actually think it's possible? It is a good description. I think that it's important to emphasize that the Legacy Dialogues seeks to empower and enable people to think about how they want to live their lives because we actually live our legacies. The way we live is going to influence our legacy more than what we leave behind. We've all heard stories of wealthy 
men or women who were very, you know, cruel to their families or maybe to their employees or, you know, for X, Y, or Z reason, they weren't very well respected. And so they may leave a lot of money to their heirs, but they haven't necessarily had a meaningful impact on those people's lives, right? So not that anybody's going to be unhappy if somebody leaves you a significant amount of money, but I'm sure, and I know because I've heard this, people who say, I wish she or he had spent more time with me instead of leaving me, you know, X amount of dollars. I don't want to put a number on it because numbers mean different things to different people. But usually relationships mean a lot to most people. And so through the legacy dialogues, what we are trying to do or or what I'm trying to do, and I have some people who collaborate with me, is to help people understand that, yes, you don't need to have a lot to leave a legacy, but we're all going to leave a legacy. Is it the one we want to leave? So let's live our legacies. Think about how you're treating the people you live with. Think about how you talk to the Uber driver or your neighbor. And then go beyond that. What is your role in your community? Um, And all of those things are about starting or living with the end in mind. And when I say the end, it doesn't mean necessarily the end of your life, but it means the outcome, right? So do you aspire to be that person who, you know, gives joy to others and and can reflect like brightens a room when you walk in? And not everybody aspires to that. Some people are very quiet about the good that they do. And that's fine as well, because really when we are doing good for others, ultimately we're doing good for ourselves because those are the deposits in our spiritual bank account that no one can take away from you. You know, they don't lose value in the market. They they aren't exposed to, you know, interest rate risk. And so, yes, through my work, I have the f- good fortune of working with people who are not only very smart and hardworking, good people, but they tend to be very generous and thoughtful people as well. And sometimes they are looking for guidance and how they can express that thoughtfulness and that generosity. Um, They, you know, if they have children, oftentimes they want to help their children, but they're concerned that too much help can actually have a counter effect and hurt the children. And they also want to give back because they recognize that they got to where they are thanks to the help of, you know, maybe a mentor, maybe uh, an institution, an organization, be it the Boys and Girls Club or, you know, Girls Inc. or UNICEF. There, there are a lot of people who are very grateful to hospitals who have saved their children's lives, for example. And I was a founding member of the Latino Council for Boston Children's Hospital, and not because I ever had one of my kids in at Boston Children's Hospital. Fortunately, my kids are very healthy and, and were always very healthy, but I can empathize with parents and, and with children who are sick and parents of those children. And so ultimately, 
through the dialogues that we have, I hope people can become aware that they can do a lot with resources that go beyond money. Just for a listener, what are the dialogues exactly? Like, how does that work? So the legacy dialogues are a series of dialogues that we put on. We, we used to do it live. We are now doing it virtually, like most things since the pandemic. And the dialogues seek to engage people in meaningful conversation about important topics that cover social issues mostly, right? So we do have a series of dialogues before the pandemic, for example, that were tailor made for women. And so we had a women's series where that was not so much around a social topic. It was more about helping women who've reached a certain point in their lives think about what they want to do next. You know, maybe they've already worked in their careers for, you know, long enough that they're ready to do something else. Maybe their kids are independent and now they have more time. And so that is also, you know, part of our program. But the what we call the signature dialogues usually will gather a group of people with someone who will spark the dialogue. So for example, in January, we had a dialogue about empathy and race and the role empathy can play in helping people who don't suffer from racism understand what it's like to experience racism and therefore want to contribute to eliminating it. And for that dialogue, I invited a doctor from MGH, uh, Dr. Jocelyn Carter, who works in the area, she's a physician and works in the area of identifying healthcare gaps and, and addressing those healthcare gaps, among other things in her medical field. And I also invited artist Richard Haynes, who is an artist that through art has uh, tells the story of the suffering and the plight of slaves in America. And so they sparked the dialogue. And by sharing their stories of racism, unfortunately, that they experienced in childhood or in their careers, the audience was able to go through this exercise, if you will, of empathizing with them. And then instead of having a Q&A, we have an open dialogue. And so the participants can share their own stories briefly. They can ask questions to our guests, our special guests. And together through this dialogue, this conversation, we can all come up with some action items. You know, what can we do from here? And so following the dialogues, I send a summary of what was discussed, some of the conclusions, um, and they're not final conclusions. They should lead to more dialogue. And then some of the resources and actions people can take to address the issue at hand. That's fabulous. Thank you. This is actually also an excellent moment to transition into the next section of our conversation. Authentic leaders bring their whole person into the world. So the personal is just as important as the professional. You already shared with us your passion for helping others, but I'm wondering if you would be willing to share some of your other personal passions or hobbies and maybe how 
they sort of translate into how you show up at work? Absolutely. I love to write. So I've liked to write since I was a child, and I think I have it in my bones and in my blood, as uh, an author that I'm working with now told me when I told him that both of my parents are writers. I do like to be very creative in my writing. And so the way I think this impacts my work and my other activities is, is that piece of creativity. You know, when, when I think about some of the things I've done in my career, first of all, my career, career has not followed the traditional path of you graduate from high school, you go to college, you get your first job, and so on and so forth. So I had to be creative. You know, I went to college after having two kids. I was a single, I found myself as a single mother, and I was working a full-time job. Obviously, that called for creativity in my schedule, and um, it was very important to me not to be absent for my kids. I wanted to be very present. And so one, I don't know if you would call it a creative solution, but one solution for me was to study when they were studying in the evenings. Obviously, I was studying after they went to bed because the next day I had to go to work. I wasn't going to school uh, until the... Uh, later in the afternoon. But one thing that I have noticed when reflecting upon my career is that I do like to look at things from different angles. You know, things may be done one way, but my question is always, is that the best way? Is there a better way to do it? Is there a way that's going to make more sense? Is going to make more, have more impact? Is it going to, you know, resonate more? And will it, you know, even be more enjoyable depending on what, what the task at hand is? And so I think that my creative streak in writing is reflected in the way I approach business as well. That's great. Next question. This is my favorite question of the whole podcast. Are there business cliches or phrases that when you hear them, it you go like, they make your skin crawl? I would say there are. And one that comes to mind is the phrase, I'm all set. I'm all set. Like, what does I'm all set mean? You're all set because you didn't, you don't even know what I'm going to say. You know, if you ask somebody just hypothetically speaking, you could ask somebody for a meeting, you know, to tell them what you do. And they're like, I'm all set. I'd rather somebody say, I'm not interested. I don't have time. I'm not open to new ideas. I know they're not going to go that far, but all set just means I'm not open to listening. I'm not, I think I have all the answers to me, it's a reflection of closed-mindedness. And so I try to stay away from that phrase. I also think it's something that I don't like because it's a reflection of comfort. And I'm all for comfort, but I'm not all for getting too comfortable where we are. I have said it throughout our conversation. I always think we can improve. I strongly believe in learning from others. And oftentimes that means hearing a new idea. It also means hearing things we don't like. You know, it's it's not easy to hear someone say, you know, this decision that you made probably 
led you to this outcome that you weren't happy with. And it's also not easy to hear constructive criticism, but it's so important for growth. You know, if everybody just tells us how great we are all the time, we might actually believe it. And yes, we may be good, but we can always be better. That's a great answer. Final question, I call it the fool for the soul or fool for the body, either a recipe or a drink or, you know, a book or piece of art or movie or piece of music, something that really moves you and makes you happy. Can I say one of each? Food and book? <laughs> I'll start with the book. And uh, it's really my favorite. It's Anthony DeMello's book called Awareness. Anthony DeMello was a Jesuit priest who also studied Buddhism. He studied Zen Judaism. And he gave amazing speeches and lectures on uh, the similarities among these different religions and philosophies. And that in and of itself to me is amazing because it shows that we have so much in common, even if we believe different things. Uh, but the other thing I love about that book in particular, which is really a compilation of some of the lectures he's given, is the fact that the more aware we are of ourselves, of our surroundings, of, you know, how unimportant some things that we think are, you know, sometimes going to uh, make or break us and how important other things are that we may be ignoring, the more aware we are, really the happier we can be. And it's one of those books that I like to have on my night table and I can just open anywhere and find a phrase or, or a chapter or a paragraph that's very uplifting. Food is, you know, it's very big in, in most cultures, but definitely in Latin America, it's very big. Uh, it's a way, you know, of gathering family and it's not just about eating the meal, it's, the, it's after the meal, sitting around the table and, and talking, and, and then all of a sudden it's dinner time, you know, and you just realize that three, four hours late um, earlier, you, you just sat down to lunch, but you spent all that time talking. And one dish in particular that um, reminds me of my father and, and really brings a warm feeling to my heart is paella, which is a Spanish dish. But my father studied in Barcelona, and he learned how to uh, cook paella and I have his recipe now and and I love cooking it and my significant other ordered a great paella to be made at my house for my last birthday because he knows you know how much I love it. I think it's all about the the experience and in this case this meal in particular this dish is also about being tied to someone who who meant the world to me. Marcel this is a Wonderful, wonderful way to finish this conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for having me, Dino. And thank you for all your thoughts. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review. Tell a friend. Tell a few friends. Subscribe and post about it in social media. And if you like music, stick around because as usual, at the end of the credits, I am going to share one more song by my wife, Susan Catania, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. If you're looking for Marcel, you can find her online at uh, 
tqmwealthpartners.com or if you want to learn about the Legacy Dialogues, legacydialogues.com. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. Um, I can, I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On Instagram and Twitter, my handle is al4edp. And on Facebook, just look for the title of the show, Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. The episode was produced and recorded by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional editing and support from Fullcast. And the theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. So the song that I'm sharing with you today is uh, one of my favorites called Work Hard, Love Harder. Uh, you have heard the electric version earlier on in one of the episodes. This is the acoustic version. Enjoy. The heart beats louder than the dollar Shines light in a world gone darker Draws joy in permanent marker Work hard Time's got a job to do Punches in his time card Then he's coming for you You pray to St. Joe for that nine to five You should be praying to St. Valentine Shines a light in a world gone darker Draws joy in permanent marker Work hard love harder Hug your kids and call your mother Be grateful and be kind to others Kiss more, laugh more just for starters Work hard Time, no second time around 20, 30, 40 years fly through Suddenly you're wondering where'd your dreams get to oh, A heart beats louder than the dollar Shines a light in a world gone darker Draws joy in permanent marker Take your life and turn it up loud